Unmet Need is back for season two, and our guest today on episode 12 is Nick Desai. Nick is a serial entrepreneur. He most recently co-founded Heal as the founder and CEO. Heal enables physicians to make house calls to the patients that need it most. The company recently raised over $100 million from one of the largest commercial payers in U.S. healthcare. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to season two of Unmet Need. I am your host, Jeff Smith. Today's guest is Nick Desai. Nick is a serial entrepreneur in the healthcare space. His first company was Fit Orbit. Most recently, he was the founder and advisor of Heal, a telemedicine company providing house call medicine for every home. Nick did his education at UC Irvine, where he earned a bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering. He went on to earn a master's of science at UCLA. Nick, so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for being on Unmet Need. Uh, very excited to be here. It sounds like a great podcast. Excellent. Well, so as you, you probably know, the Unmet Need, we're focused on people just like you. So it's healthcare builders, entrepreneurs, and all the people that help us build the solutions for healthcare. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, your first company that, that we discussed was Fit Orbit. Um, what was your first entrepreneurial venture going back to even as early as your childhood? Well, <laughs> ignoring the lemonade stand I had when I was 11 years old, where I got that lemonade and candy stand, where I got the neighborhood kids to go buy candies from the store and mark them up to sell them back to other neighborhood kids. Um, uh, Heal was actually my fourth uh, investor-funded startup. I've been doing them since 1998, all in the uh, all around the premise that we should use technology and tools like the internet and mobile and smartphones to make our make life better, make life easier, make life a little, you know, just remove that little friction in the way that Uber does. So I don't have to look for parking or Grubhub does. So food shows up to my house or Netflix does. So my kids can all watch their favorite, you know, cartoons or whatever the case may be. Um, so it's, you know, I'm 20, 24, 25 years into doing this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so if you think back to, you know, your first entrepreneurial venture, what year was that? And what was the technology that was enabling kind of taking the friction out of an experience and making life better? Well, that company was called Zeki, and it was the web's first self-updating address book. I started it in 1998, and it came out of a real thing. I was a single guy at the time, and I tried to call an old girlfriend thinking I would reconnect. And her phone number had changed. And I was like, the internet, why should I have her phone number instead of access to her phone number, right? And in many ways, it was a precursor to what we see on LinkedIn or Facebook today. And um, that that was the first company. And all of them have really come out of sort of personal needs. Uh, I, when I started Fit Orbit, um, it was, the idea was I was getting married at the time to my now wife, Renee. And and I wanted to get in shape and I wanted to build a uh, online weight loss coaching tool for regular people who look like me and don't look, you know, like bodybuilders to, to get in shape. Right. And with Heal, we had an infant son um, who we took to the emergency room because we couldn't get hold of his doctor and came home eight hours later and 
said there's got to be a better way to see a doctor and created doctor house calls using a smartphone app, right? And just as a point of clarification from your intro, I'm now the founder and advisor to Heal, but I served Heal. I founded and served Heal as CEO for six and a half years, ending March 1, uh, just about six weeks ago. Going back to that, Nick, I see the arc in that you have a personal problem that you see in your own life. And do you do a lot of research and say, like, am I the only person with this problem? Or you just have your own personal conviction and go for it? I, I do enough. With with Heal, it was an idea that I didn't need to do any research for. Everyone hates going to the doctor's office. Even the people who work at doctor's offices hate going to the doctor's office. I've never met anyone in my life who said, I look forward to going to the doctor's office, right? So with that, I was just convinced that there was a universal need. But with Fitorbit and with um, Ziki and... Yeah, I did enough research to make sure it was a big problem because I'm not interested. And let me be clear when I say this, there are a lot of companies that make a lot of money doing incremental improvements, right? Where before Salesforce, there was this, before this, there was that, before this, uh, contact management's been around and CRM tools have been around forever, right? Salesforce took it to the next level. So but I'm interested in solving really big problems, right? What Uber did for transportation. I always use the same, what Airbnb did for hospitality, what Grubhub and Seamless did for food delivery, what Netflix did for content consumption, which literally changed the way we live our lives, changed the way we think about the, and, and whether, you know, literally people are watching more content more often be, and more interesting, more diverse stuff because of Netflix where they started with, uh, you know, getting CD-ROMs mailed to you. Uh, I think their business really took off when, when mobile broadband reached a critical mass where you could actually stream. And there's, you know, there's been some great books and articles written about how bold that decision was. If you go back to 1998, I got my first cell phone in 99, big Nokia brick. Um, what were you using digitally or what sort of electronic device uh, did you reference to find that your ex-girlfriend, you had the wrong number? So it was a mobile phone. I had a little LG. It was really tiny. And I still love the tininess of those phones, right? Flip phone with a little camera in it and an address book. And I didn't buy, by then I already didn't have a landline phone. I had recently moved uh, in with my brother. I wanted to find a new place and I gave up my old place and moved in. I was sleeping on his floor and and then I had this idea and I ended up, while I was building this very well-funded company, staying on his floor in his living room for three years because I was so busy, I didn't have time to, to, to build, to go find a place. But the point is, then, you know, there, there was a, the realization I had then, I distinctly remember this, is people called back then when there were landline phones, the home phone, as in the phone belong, but they called their cell phone, right. my phone right? That difference was a critical tectonic shift in the way people thought about personal communication devices. And that revolution was just beginning and no one foresaw the the, the merger of the smartphone with the internet and that explosion was still a decade away. But that was the realization, right? That people wanted people, these were personal devices and people wanted, expected the immediacy of the internet on a personal device. Right. 
And so with a CS background and electrical engineering background in, in the, I mean, I, 1998.com was heating up. You said Ziki was really well-funded. How did you go about, you know, raising capital? Had you had any experience with VC? And what was that like for you as a first-time founder? So honestly, no, I hadn't had any venture capital raising experience. And, you know, I, I tell, talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and I tell them nowadays, you guys have it so easy. You don't even know it. Right. You got when I'm sorry, I shouldn't say guys, you humans, right. Guys, women, whatever your gen, all humans who want to start a company have it so easy, relatively speaking, because you can Google search and find the VCs in your industry. You can find the name of the right partner. You can typically find their email address. You have LinkedIn to contact them. There's all these online seminars. There's in-person seminars, right? Um, back when I, I literally went to event, there was one venture conference a year in Los Angeles. I went there in person. I didn't have the money to register for the conference. So I waited outside. And when the VC came off the stage and came out the back, I accosted the guy, right? Um, I mean, not I accosted, but, but, right. but figuratively. Figuratively. And I said, I got to get a meeting with you. And then literally called, you speak to a human assistant. You leave a voicemail, they call you back, they leave a voicemail, you get a meeting. And my first term sheet was faxed to me, right? Like in a fax machine. So, and I didn't know what a term sheet was and I didn't know what a whatever um, was and all that. I didn't know any of those things, right? So we just rolled with it and, and you read and you learn and there were books about it, right? Literal books. Now, now all of these things, there's no excuse not to be able to get in front of investors, to be able to to be able to pitch them, to be able to create a great pitch deck. You just, as an entrepreneur now, you can focus on your story, right? What makes your company better? What makes your company different? Because all the other stuff is out there, right? Hell, you can download a very high quality sample term sheet that's very close to what a VC would actually do um, from the internet. Right, safe notes and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a great point, I mean, so if you if you think you you get that first term sheet, you take in your ve first venture round. How long were you building Ziki, and uh, how close to accomplishing your goal of you know solving this problem did you get? Well, we built the platform. We built to almost uh, uh, a million active daily users. That was you know back then a pretty big deal, and um, we had an opportunity to sell the company. We um, it goes back to the first dot-com crash and sort of the, you're too young to remember that, but 1990, you know, the year 2000 and 2001, there was a dot-com crash and a market meltdown. So after the board sort of decided not to sell the company, I left a little while later, um, did some consulting work, took some time off, and then started my next company and so on and so forth, right? So, you know, I, I did a lot and I learned a lot. And um, and and so it was great in that context, right? Did it achieve, did I become a zillionaire with an exit? No, I didn't. But I, I had an incredible experience and one that said, I want to do this again. And a million daily active users that early in the mobile build. And, and you're very kind, by the way, Nick. I... Um, I was raising money in 1999 and graduated in 2000. And so I was, wasn't wow. far behind you, not quite as savvy, but I have, uh, I can relate. 
So, uh, and also timing wasn't great to be looking yeah. to sell a business and around then. Um, excellent. So what the, the inspiration you're getting married to Renee and you know, you want to get fit at that time, 2008, what were the, the technological foundations that you were building from? So I guess you have broadband mobile, like, was that big, a big part of your strategy? Yeah. So, so let's think the first generation of the internet was about two things, commerce and content, right? Ooh, I could find the news on the internet and Ooh, I could buy stuff on the internet. Oh, Amazon came out then and Google, I could search, I could like, could read stuff. Right. But the second generation of the internet, by the time 2008 comes around was a about, you have to build for mobile, right. And be about connecting you to people. That's when social media exploded. It wasn't when it was created. MySpace goes back farther. Facebook goes back farther. But it's when it's exploded. Because this platform made that LinkedIn, Facebook, all of these things had their media rising. So the context of Fitterbit was to connect you to a real human personal trainer over the internet for $10 a week and build a service where a trainer could guide you without you having to go see the trainer, without you having to be intimidated in the gym to get all the benefits of a trainer and for that trainer to fan out their services, right? In a, in a weird way, in a precursor to so many of these marketplaces where Fiverr and this and that, where driver people can, you know, if you're a musician or if you're a handyman or if you're a cook or if you're a chef or whatever, you can get a gig to come and do something for some money. This was a platform that enabled trainers, a two-sided marketplace that enabled trainers to monetize the revenues from patient uh, from clients who wanted to lose weight but do it all online, right? But very much in the mindset of that second generation of the internet. Understood the connectedness. And we had a previous guest, Holly Rillinger, who she talked about a, a platform that she's launched. And it was really, she's somebody that came up through Flywheel, Peloton, the kind of in-person community style mm -hmm. fitness. And, and then when pushed into shelter in place, she kind of tried to do what you, you did much earlier uh, with Fit Orbit. When I think of the health and fitness, it is, there's a lot of brand, there's a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. Were there other companies that had a uh, you know, broader establishment in fitness that you were competing with? Or how did you navigate brand recognition in a market that's so saturated? Well, so I think the interesting thing about what you're asking is that the fitness industry is very prone to fads, right? There were all the infomercials of the 80s and 90s, right? Suzanne Summers and the thigh presser and then... John they, Bastow. Yes, and what they called <laughs> exercise. Him? Yes, I, all these guys and ladies and exercise bikes and Jane Fonda this and yoga that. And then it went to these big gyms that keep getting bigger and bigger family fitness, 24-hour fitness, uh, Equinox, right? LA Sport, all these from Planet Fitness at the very low end of the price point to Equinox at the very high end. They got more and more in the juice bars and socialization. And then it went to these classes, right? It, it was spin class and yoga class and yoga lotties and really back to equipment in the home and but much more advanced equipment but now bringing in some of the social elements so that your screen is connected to other people or an instructor or competing for points or pelotoning against other people right mm -hmm. um 
So it'll be interesting to see what the next trend is. For us, we had um, the brand building was 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 is a really really tough thing, and it's especially tough. And the reason there are so many fads is that there's a group of Americans, ten to twenty percent of Americans, who are fit like yourself, who probably have a routine, who stay in shape, who have figured out what works for them. They eat right or they exercise a certain way. Whatever works for them, they keep doing right. And they're organically or self-motivated to drive fitness, right? The rest of America are people who actually will not get in shape. That's, that's a few of them will transcend, but most of that rest of the 75% either will never even try because they don't care or they try and they go from this to that and this to that. And I'm, I'm in that camp and their weight goes up and down like a yo-yo and, and whatever. And as much as I'd love to be, it's just not something that I've ever found enjoyable. So <laughs> the reason that brand is important is because you want to catch the wave of the moment, right? There was um, body by Jake and there was um, uh, uh Beach bodies, and there was South Beach diet and paleo. There's just all everyone comes out with a new way. And the what is the promise of that new way? This is easier. This right. is better. <laughs> you have to do less, but you will gain more, as in lose more weight more easily and more quickly, right? The little bands that you wear that zap you into losing weight, right? <laughs> right. Um, <With> six pack. <laughs> and and yeah, but but the reality is that the only way to lose weight is to eat better and exercise, period. That's it. And so what we tried to do with Fit Orbit is speak to that reality, but make the story very personal about real people who could use this tool to really achieve goals. And, and but we did brand affiliation with Jenny Craig, with Body by Jake, uh, with a fitness personality known as Jackie Warner, who was had a show on Bravo, with uh, Bethany Frankel, who was skinny girl. She was one of the real housewives of somewhere and built a fitness brand from that. We did a lot of brand partnerships to, to, to leverage um, the brands uh, that, that could help us sell a Fedorbit into people. But, but it was an, the most important learning from that company was how hard it is to sell fitness to people beyond the week of New Year's resolutions. The entire industry is actually based on one of two things, selling a very high priced piece of equipment into your home. So you make the, or breakage, right? The whole gym membership model is used as an example. 10,000 people join, 40 people will show up, right? Right. (laughs) So you have like the lifetime value for the Peloton model. You get as much of it as you can in the initial upfront purchase. And then your churn, maybe six months, yeah. nine months, you're okay. Yeah. What, what was your churn at, you know, fit, fit orbit when you're thinking you're, you're charging weekly, right. which I, was, was that a novel pricing model? Yeah, it was, but we, what we did was it was actually 30 bucks a week if you bought it week to week, but it was $10 a week if you prepaid for six months. Right. Okay. And then there was all kinds of gizmos and tchotchkes you got for prepaying for six months. Right. And that's the plan. That's what we focused on because that was the sale, that six month sale, that was the sale. So if you could get, if you could get, what is that? $240 over the course of six months, 
did that cover your customer acquisition costs and how would you acquire customers? It it did. We acquired customers through those brand partnerships, through search engine marketing, through social media, through word of mouth and referral from our trainers. But, 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 but I will say it is, it is a, it is a tough industry to succeed in. And I admire those who have, right. Um, I really do because what, what Tonal has done, what Peloton has done, again, appealing to a affluent demographic, but what they have done is build great success, right? Or class passed it, or the people which we didn't achieve that kind of success with, with Fit Orbit, right? It was, ironically, I think it's better suited now because so many services that were self-help, self-help, like LegalZoom has well, you can come and get all the documents, but if you want to talk to a lawyer, you can do that now. And that's a upsell, right? And right. QuickBooks has, you can use QuickBooks, but if you the want to talk to an accountant, right? The bookkeeping service. So they've learned to upsell services, right? So ironically, I think it's better suited for now, but it doesn't have the cool factor of a really shiny new gadget that you get. And it doesn't have the cool factor of all my friends are doing it. That was a fundamental flaw in a model that albeit really worked, required you to do the work. All right. So with that backdrop, I can, I see the, I see the arc here. This makes total Mm -hmm. sense and can really relate and admire the serial entrepreneur. Um, So how, how your infant son needed to go to the ER. 2014. 2014. Okay. So after six years at Fit Orbit, uh, started thinking about this idea with my wife and then created the company. And so was Renee involved uh, in building out Heal? Yeah. So it's funny. We, we had this idea, like if I can Uber, we went home in an Uber that night, right? And (laughs) if I can Uber, why can't I get a doctor to come to my house? Right. And then you know, she's a practicing nephrologist and I'm a, you know, entrepreneur. So I went and uh, made a little mock app. It wasn't really working, but a mock app. And I showed it to her and I said, what do you think of this? And she's like, this is a billion dollar idea. We should do this. And we were both in and we, it is a billion dollar idea, right? Because the value of it is the, the most important thing that happened in the third generation of connected services is we went away from the browser as the interface to the phone as the interface. And that allowed us to use location and personalization and and integration of all these services. And, but still most services that come to your house, they are equal to or slightly less than the experience of going there. With, if a book comes to your house from Amazon, it's the same book. The book isn't better because it came to your house. It's not worse, but it's not better, right? Right. Maybe you want it the same day and Amazon, now Amazon delivers a lot of stuff the same day. But the point is, <laughs> you could go buy it at a bookstore the same day, but you don't have to drive, but it come to your house the next day. If you order food from Grubhub it, or watch a movie on Netflix, it's great. But you don't have a hundred inch, you know, THX, Dolby, whatever system in your house. And the food comes in little cardboard containers and you have to, you know, you still have to clean up the plates and they still, the kids still spill on the floor and you ordered extra cheese and they put no cheese and all of these kinds of things, right? When a doctor comes to your house, it's actually not just more convenient. In these services, you're trading convenience for, for a little bit diminished experiences with or lack of immediacy 
when a doctor comes to your house, it's not just more convenient, it's actually fundamentally better healthcare, because the home is the only place where a doctor can truly assess the social determinants of health, the fall risk, the behavior, the smoking, the what's in the pill bottles, the food insecurities, the lifestyle of the person that affect up to 80% of health outcomes, right? And that's what we discovered early on, that the service, we started as an on-demand, you know, hey, my kid's sick, come to my house, right? Actually had a fundamental ability to transform healthcare by taking, serving the worried well, but focusing on chronic disease patients who cost the most in healthcare and who are often socioeconomically disadvantaged going into their home, delivering them great care that understands the context of their lifestyle and helping them and their insurance partner actually save money by improving health outcomes. And that's what I'm most interested in. I mean, this is, you know, I've been fascinated by this idea and I never understood how the economics would work because, you know, my last 20 years of my career have been in healthcare, specialty orthopedics and neurosurgery selling devices and services and the fee for service model i didn't understand how you could how you could make it work where a nephrologist would you know drive 20 minutes across town park have all that downtime how did you approach that problem initially and what did you learn so the fee for service model doesn't work and and the commercial fee for service model it doesn't work but fee for service isn't good for healthcare for getting healed right because it focuses on volume over value the goal of a doctor should not be to see as many patients as possible per day. The goal should be to improve the health of each patient they see in a quantifiable way, right? If a doctor sees me and, oh, okay, Nick, you called me for your sore throat. Okay, that's fine. But they don't have the time to understand that my sore throat is because of reflux, which will eventually turn into this, or I have, I'm pre-diabetic or whatever the case may be, Right then they admit that's a missed opportunity and doctors are put in a position where they're on a treadmill of patients. So they can't focus on that despite the fact that they have the skills to do that. But if that doctor spent more time with me and identified my diabetes, it cost $1,500 a year to treat pre-diabetic, uh, $5,000 a year to treat a diabetic, $20,000 a year to treat a chronic disease, chronic kidney patient, and $100,000 a year to treat treat someone on dialysis, right? We want to arrest that progression. We want to slow that down, right? And the way to do that is comprehensive, coordinated uh, care from a PCPO as the time to deliver the care that the patient needs to actually achieve better health. So the PCP is a key role there. Yes, it the PCP, like. that, the whole service yeah. is built around the PCP. Right, that makes sense. And so in the case of Heal, um, one of the commercial payers, you know, made a, a, a very significant investment. Uh, is, is that something you can talk about? Clearly, an insuring, insurance company that benefits from better care and lower cost sees value in what Heal's doing. Uh, how did you begin that discussion? So uh, that, that we, with the big investor we got in our deal round was Humana, right? And uh, we were we were thrilled to get that investment. We originally met them in December of 2019 um, at their offices in Louisville, Kentucky. And we had a meeting in which we really resonated. And they had a vision for home-centric care. 
and they showed us a video about it. And then we showed them a video of what we do now. And what we were already doing was exactly their vision, right? So they, they quickly began a process that was a pretty exhaustive, extensive due diligence process um, that took six months. And they invested in, in July of 2016, they closed their investment um, in Heal. Uh, and, and so it was, you know, it was a huge win. It took a long time and it was, <laughs> to say their due diligence is exhausting is the understatement of the year, but uh, it was worth it. And they're an incredible partner and we're, we're thrilled to have them. And it was one of the big moments of my career is, is landing them as, a, as an investor and, and partner because they're not just an investor. They're an investor, they're a customer, they're a partner, they're an advisor. They can do all of the kinds of things um, that that we would want uh, all in one company. So we were, you know, we were really, really excited by that. Excellent. Well, I, I don't, do you mind if I share, because it's public, they invested a hundred million dollars. Yes, yeah, so sorry, a million dollars, yes. What, I, mean, a, I mean, even if that was an exit, that's a significant amount. That's a significant investment from a strategic. Was that discussion, are you able to share? Did, did they ever say, can we just buy the whole company? Because they would seem like the natural acquirer of the business. So, so I will answer that question in more general terms, right? Okay. Which is public companies typically don't buy smaller private companies unless they have, they're profitable, right? EBITDA profitable, because they don't want to take any hit to the P&L. So an investment allows them to have a minority stake in a company without, uh, and make a balance sheet investment without impacting the P&L. Right, that's a general public company viewpoint. Understood. So, in a general view, if a private company then gets to scale and becomes profitability, where it won't be a drag on earnings, that would be the natural time where yep. a strategic investor would acquire. Yep, makes sense. Well, this is this is really interesting. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, if if you could say five years from now your vision of where Heal will be. I know you will be onto your next exciting startup that uh, will be probably as big or bigger, but where do you see Heal in, in five years? I think the doctor's office is dead in the same way that I think my, son, my eldest son is seven years old. I don't think he's ever gonna learn how to drive a car because I think with autonomous vehicles and services like Uber, he's not gonna need to. And I don't. he already doesn't know what a DVD is. He already doesn't know what a CD-ROM is, right? because there's streaming content. I don't think he's ever going to need to, God willing, go to a doctor's office, God forbid, something serious happens, surgical needs, acute emergency needs. I think that we're going to decouple care and that telehealth is accelerating that too, but decouple care um, from a physical location um, to be patient-centric and in the home. Excellent. Well, you heard it here, folks. Keel is going to decouple healthcare. The doctor's office is dead. And just my take, it sounds like the combination of telemedicine and comprehensive home care will change healthcare. So if it's okay, we're going to end by going to the vault, Nick. So Let's rapid fire question. Let's go to the vault. <laughs> um, so the first question, in your education, childhood, and early career, who's one person other than your parents that saw potential in you, encouraged you to dream big? In the early days of my life, other than my parents, it was my oldest and dearest friend, Krishna Shinoi. Um, I was a, through high school, 
And in my first year of college, I was a problem student. Um, I ditched class. I talked back to teachers. I was bored out of my mind. And I don't mind saying I'm a pretty high, you know, I, I have intellectual gifts, right? So I was able to do well without much work. And I mailed it in. And I met him in my sophomore year of engineering school at UC Irvine. And uh, basically, he just, he was such an inspiring guy that without saying anything, he made me understand that it wasn't the opportunity to do well was an obligation to do well, right? And I had the responsibility to realize the potential of my gifts. And so we're still friends. Um, 33 years later, he's a He's an endowed chair at, at Stanford University and, and one of the world's leading researchers in neural prosthetics. So father of two amazing girls and, and we're very, very close friends to this day. That's wonderful, it's inspiring. Um, thank you. So the second question, in the last year, it's been an interesting year, <clears throat> a book, a poem, a piece of art, a movie, documentary, is there something you saw in the last 12 months that really had an impact on you and has changed the way you think? Yeah, I saw a documentary about extremely poor people in India, where I'm originally from, that live in these slums. You can't imagine what these slums are like and are trying to escape by being entrepreneurial. And one of the guys in this story, in Calcutta, there's a gold market. Gold jewelry is very popular in India. And there's a whole, he used to work for a guy who would sweep the streets after the gold, the, the goldsmiths all went home to capture the dust of gold that fell off their clothes to resell it. And then he had the idea that, well, it rains a lot in this city. So some of the gold's ending up in the gutter. So he would get up in the middle of the night, four o'clock in the morning and lower himself into this shit filled gutter. capture shit and for every ton of shit he'd capture he got seven grams of gold but he used this process to escape extreme poverty and actually build a business and even i grew up i grew up in orange county california and my parents are educated and you know I, i i lived in a safe house and i have a wonderful wife today and a great kid i have every iota of privilege you can imagine but to be reminded that that's where entrepreneur that you know that kind of drive and hunger literally is what drives entrepreneurs. It was just it 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 really really reminded me of how important it is to stay hungry and stay focused and dream big. I love it. Do you recall the name of the documentary? We can look you it know, up if you don't. I don't. I don't. It was something. There's a lot of documentaries about the slums in India. I don't remember this one. Um, uh, but I will, I can find it and email it to you. We'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, I love it. I want to, I want to watch it. All right. So the third question in your day-to-day work now as an entrepreneur and, and as a founder, what's the one technological tool that you use the most and you couldn't live without? Um, wow. There's a, there's a lot uh, in that category, but if I had to say one, I would say it's the, the smartphone, right? It's the, multi, I can do my email here, I can do my text here, I can read documents here, edit documents here, I can sign documents here, I can order food, I can coordinate rides, everything that happens here, this is the indispensable, you know, asset, right? And I should have asked, I I apologize, Nick, so is there one application on your phone? Oh, 
I would say the application on my phone that I use the most is Uber, actually. Uber, excellent. A man on the move. All right, and then the final question, in your experience building Heal and for what you imagine you'll do next, what do you see as the biggest unmet need as an entrepreneur? The need for me as an entrepreneur, the need in healthcare. Either. Okay. Well, the need for me as an entrepreneur is just how hard it is to find equally motivated and hardworking people in an age where, you know, there's a phrase at, at, at startups I've been at and others that if you don't come in on Saturday, don't even bother to show up on Sunday, right? And it's a basic, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about work-life balance, and I have three kids, and balance is important, and I'm not telling anyone to work to death. But I do think that the hard work is critical to success, and I think that less and less people are motivated by, I want to go all in on this, and I don't want to go all in on this because it's a job. I want to go all in on this because it's my opportunity to change the world for the better, right? Um I think in healthcare, what's needed is how come there's no healthcare? How come Uber, Netflix, Grubhub, Airbnb, these are used by tens of millions of people. The most successful healthcare, health tech apps are used by a few hundred thousand people. Why? Who's going to make the first healthcare app that 50 million people use, right? What is it? And what kind of function, utility, value will that have to deliver to cross that kind of usability and usefulness and user scale? Makes sense. Maybe. I don't know what Calm is at right now, but would you consider Calm a healthcare app? I would consider Calm a wellness app. So, sorry, there are tools like Calm and Noom and stuff that are broadly connected to healthcare that are technology-only driven tools that have but I'm talking about healthcare services tools, right? That scale, Calm is something you might use in addition to your PCP and your nephrologist if you're a chronic kidney disease patient. But there are 40 million chronic kidney disease patients. You probably wouldn't find an app that more than half a million of them are using, right? So I think Calm, Headspace, some of these companies definitely come into the space, but but they're they're out here and not at the core of clinical care delivery. All right. Well, Nick, thanks so much for being on Unmet Need. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. This was awesome.